0: Welcome to Radio Maria England for our Science and Faith program, where we will be exploring the relationship between science and faith from a Christian perspective. This is Marta speaking.
1: And this is Shimon speaking. We are your presenters for the program and would like to welcome you to the episode on Embryonic Cells and Research and Medicine Is the Church Against Progress? When people think about conflict between science and religion, they will often bring this as an example, a religious opposition to stem cell research or vaccines developed with the use of fetal cell lines. Therefore, we would like to take a closer look at this subject. How are embryonic cells used in research and medicine currently? For what purpose? And what moral concerns do people raise? And are these concerns justified? Finally, why is bioethics important? And does science need it? In order to tackle all these questions and many more, we have invited two guests, Professor Paul Fairchild, a stem cell scientist and professor of immunology in Oxford, and Michael Wee, a Catholic bioethicist. Marta, would you like to introduce our first guest?
0: Professor Paul Fairchild is a fellow of Trinity College in Oxford and is now based at the Sir William Dunn School of Pathology, teaching preclinical medicine. His research background is in immunology and stem cells, and his work has led to several patents and the recent establishment of a biotechnology company focusing on cancer immunotherapy. He is founder of the Oxford Stem Cell Institute, where he served as co director for seven years. It was during this time that he had the opportunity to discuss the ethics of stem cell biology to world leaders at multiple meetings at the World Economic Forum. Professor Fairchild has served on the scientific advisory boards of various companies and organisations and has provided evidence to the House of Lords Select Committee for Science and Technology. He is a Christian and has been involved in church leadership in various evangelical churches in both Oxford and Cambridge. Great to have you with us, Professor Fairchild. Can you tell us, as you put it, a little bit about your only claim to fame?
2: Gosh, my only claim to fame. Well, I think you're probably referring to the fact that my laboratory is actually based in the very room where penicillin was first developed as the very first antibiotic, in fact. And so there's a huge amount of expectation on me that I will do something equally dramatic, which is going to affect so many million people. And unfortunately, so far, people have been very disappointed. But it's certainly nice to have that as a background to our work. Our second guest is
1: Michael Wee. Michael is Education and Research Officer at the Aston Bioethics Centre, which is a Catholic research institute based in Oxford. He's also a member of Pontifical Academy for Life, which serves as the Holy See's advisory board on bioethics. Michael has published on medical ethics and moral philosophy in scholarly and popular journals. I actually came across some of your writings in the Catholic Heralds, for example. His other research interests include Aquinas, Wittgenstein, the philosophy of language and the philosophy of psychology. Thank you, Michael, for joining us here today for the show. I'm quite curious about your relationship with the Holy See and your work with the Pontifical Academy for Life. What is it that you actually do for them? Have you been to Rome? Have you met the Pope?
3: Well, I have been to Rome several times. And in fact, the last time that I was in Rome, I was with my family. We were attending a conference sponsored by the Vatican. And the guest of honour of the conference was no less than His Holiness Pope Francis. So we got to meet him in a private audience obviously in pre-COVID days where we shook his hand and he kissed our baby. That was one of the highlights of our time in Rome. The Pontifical Academy for Life is an international advisory body which serves the Holy See. There's over 100 members. Most of us are Catholic, but in recent times, Pope Francis has, I think very wisely, widened the scope of membership to include, you might say, sympathetic non-Catholics, because I think it's important to work with others from different intellectual traditions and faith traditions on those areas where we can see eye to eye on in the defense of human life.
1: Oh, what a blessing to meet the Pope and have your baby blessed in this special way. (laughs) Okay, let's move on then. Today we want to discuss the subject of the use of embryonic and fetal cells in research in medicine. And there are actually two different areas where these cells are involved currently. One is stem cell research for regenerative medicine. And the other one is production of cell lines that then they're used to manufacture uh, some drugs and vaccines, so you wanted to take them apart. And let's focus on stem cells first and, and cell therapies. And Professor Parchez, if you could tell us a bit more what stem cells actually are, what types of stem cells scientists distinguish, and how they're isolated from our body, what are different ways of sourcing them?
2: Yeah, stem cells, I like to think of them as the building blocks of pretty much all the tissues and organs of the body. And these are naturally held in particular places within those organs known as niches. So niches are actually the sites where stem cells are usually found within tissues. And so I sometimes use the comparison of perhaps building an extension to your house and having some of the building materials left over, and rather than throwing those away, perhaps storing them in the garage so that you could actually use them in the future if you had to effect repairs to the building. And it's rather like that with stem cells, because these are just small numbers of cells, which are held in these particular sites, which can then be called upon later in life to try and repair the tissue if it requires repair through damage, or even if cells just simply dive through old age or become a feat. So that's really what a stem cell is. There are many different types of stem cells, as you may already be aware. So the most common populations that we harbor within our own bodies are what are known as multipotent stem cells. And these are able to give rise to a range of different cell types, but usually cell types that make up the tissue in which that particular stem cell resides. So these are are cells which can give rise to multiple different cell types, but they certainly can't give rise to all the cell types that make up the body. And so to actually find a cell type that could give rise to all of the 210 cell types that make up the human body, you actually have to wind back the developmental clock quite a long way to the pre-implantation embryo, which is known as the blastocyst. And so it's actually the blastocyst, so just before implantation, which harbors these pluripotent stem cells. And these are the cells which can literally make all of the body parts of the developing embryo and then the fetus and the entire individual. And at the point of implantation within the blastocyst, there are around about 20 of these cells. And they make up what is known as the inner cell mass of the blastocyst. And so those are purely pluripotent. There is in fact another population of stem cells, which you can find if you wind back the developmental clock even further. And those are known as totipotent stem cells. And in fact, those are cells which can give rise to not only all of the cell types and tissues in the body of an individual, but also all of the extra embryonic tissues. So the placenta, the amniotic sac, the umbilical cord, all of the plumbing, if you like, of the developing embryo. And you find that in the in what is known as the morula, at around about the four to the eight cell stage. So from the, the fertilized egg right up until about the eight cell stage, those cells are totipotent and can give rise to either the extraembryonic tissues or the cells of the actual embryo proper. But it becomes progressively restricted so that at the point of implantation, we have either the trophoblast that gives rise to all the extra embryonic tissues and that inner cell mass, which then gives rise to the entire embryo. And so those are the cells which now go on to form the embryo. But pluripotency is then very rapidly lost shortly after implantation. And in fact, none of us here today harbor even a single pluripotent stem cell. So we're much more restricted in what we can do in terms of accessing those stem cells. There are only multipotent stem cells that are left in the body from that point onwards.
1: These are all natural stem cells, if you like, so you potent and pluripotent in the embryonic development. And then now as adults, we harbour the multipotent cells, as you mentioned. Scientists also work on something that's called induced pluripotent stem cells. Can you tell us more about what
2: these are? Yes, absolutely. This is a very big uh, breakthrough in the whole stem cell field, which happened back in 2006. And actually, Shinya Yamanaka, who I've met personally on a number of occasions, was actually responsible for this work and was awarded the Nobel Prize for it in 2012. So what he showed was that simply by introducing as few as four genes into any cell of the body, it is possible to propel that cell backwards in its developmental program back to a pluripotent state. So that cell, which might have started off as a fibroblast, for instance, or even just a a leukocyte from the blood, is now entirely pluripotent and can now redifferentiate into literally any one of those 210 or thereabout cell types that make up the human body so Because of induced pluripotency, we no longer require to access those pluripotent stem cells that you usually find within the blastocyst, those very early embryos. And of course, that has huge implications for ethics, for instance, that we're now able to access pluripotency in man for the first time, but without the need for embryonic material.
0: I think that prompts the question, why is the scientific community interested in stem cells? Is it because we are hoping to treat some diseases using them, perhaps?
2: Yes, absolutely. And that really is the whole basis of regenerative medicine, which is a whole area that has has grown up since 1998, when human embryonic stem cells were first derived from supernumerary blastocysts in the IVF clinics. And the hope is that by deriving just a single line of embryonic stem cells, that we can now produce multiple different cell types, which could be used to cure many different disease states, as distinct as diabetes or myocardial infarction, so heart attack, things like Parkinson's disease, for instance, and even, you know, various diseases of the eye, for instance, like macular degeneration. So that is really the hope that with that single cell line, if we can work out how to force their differentiation in vitro in the laboratory setting into populations of cells which might be useful in curing disease that we could then actually cure those disease states in a whole host of different people.
0: And can that be done with the induced pluripotent cells?
2: Yes absolutely and you know that is where a lot of the focus is currently aimed because we can now do much the same using induced pluripotent stem cells instead. They bring their own complexity, because they are genetically modified so we have to introduce particular genes into these cells very early on in order to cause them to de-differentiate back to a pluripotent state but nevertheless they are extremely flexible as cells and they can be used to differentiate into pretty much any cell type as long as we know how to actually prompt them to differentiate down that pathway so they are entirely pluripotent
1: in terms of different ways of sourcing stem cells I'm just interested about some examples, let's say, could we collect stem cells after abortion of embryos, for example, or after miscarriage or stillbirth? Is it possible to create embryos in vitro for the purpose of research? Or do scientists sometimes try to reach for so-called spare embryos from in vitro fertilization and source stem cells that way?
2: Well, back in the early days, before induced pluripotency had been discovered, then the sources of embryonic stem cells, so pluripotent stem cells, were very restricted, as I mentioned. So the only real source was that inner cell mass from human blastocysts. And so the normal source for accessing those cells are supernumerary blastocysts. So blastocysts that are left over in IVF clinics and would be destroyed anyway, because it is a legal requirement that these are only maintained for, I believe it's five years in this country, after which they then have to be destroyed. So those that would be destroyed anyway were then used as a source of that inner cell mass, which can then form one of these embryonic stem cell lines. So that is the usual way in which these are produced. By definition, it's always those embryos that are left over which tend to be used. And so it has been mooted in the past that it would be better to actually create these embryos specifically as a source of embryonic stem cells because, as I was saying, by definition, the best of those embryos that are produced in IVF clinics will be re-implanted. And it's only those that are suboptimal that tend to be left over. And so some people have suggested that it would be a good idea to actually create embryos specifically as a source of embryonic stem cells. I certainly wouldn't agree with that. I think that reduces human life to a utilitarian level. And to my knowledge, that has actually never been done. There was a bit of a debate about that probably about 15 years ago, but I don't think that was ever actually performed. You mentioned that there might be other sources, so miscarriage or stillbirth. I very much doubt that either of those would actually be used as a source of uh, cell types, and particularly not stem cells, but potentially other cell types, partly because of the actual circumstances. I think it would be extremely difficult to get ethical approval to actually make use of tissues and organs that had been produced under such tragic circumstances but also of course miscarriage is also often prompted because there is some abnormality in the developing fetus so arguably it might not actually be the best source of cells that you would want to uh, want to access so uh, i very much doubt that that would ever actually be a source Now, elective abortions, of course, is another matter. And of course, on some occasions, cell lines and particular tissues have been produced and used from aborted fetuses. But of course, that opens up a whole area of ethics, which is very complex.
0: I think before we go any further, we've been talking about in vitro fertilization and you've mentioned the best embryos and the suboptimal. Do you want to just explain very, very briefly what IVF is and what makes an embryo in the eyes of IVF the best and then suboptimal?
2: Yes, that's quite a a subjective thing, to be honest. And I certainly don't really have any expertise in that. IVF, as I suspect your listeners will know, is actually uh, an attempt to enable couples who are struggling with infertility to actually have a child of their own. And this is through inducing fertilization of an egg ex vivo, so in vitro, and then re-implanting that blastocyst back into the recipient mother. And in order to try and get a, a pregnancy, it's imperative to try and produce many different embryos, only some of which will be useful for reimplantation, And so often there are many that are actually left over. And it's those which are then not reimplanted, or are kept for five years in case the couple would like a second child or would want to try if the first pregnancy was not successful for a second child. But only if they do not wish to make use of those embryos would they then be used to act as a source of embryonic stem cells.
0: In vitro just means in the lab, right?
2: Yes, Yes, that's right. Yes.
0: Okay, thank
1: you. Michael, we've heard so many different examples of sourcing stem cells, different types of stem cells. I'm curious if you could kind of shed uh, your bioethic light on this subject a little bit and try to unpick differences and just give some kind of moral perspective on which of these ways can be problematic and which could be acceptable from the moral perspective.
3: Yes. So I think, as you mentioned, In one of your initial questions at the opening of this show, there is sometimes a perception that the church, or perhaps more broadly, Christianity, or people of religious faith in general, are opposed to progress, are opposed to science. And certainly when you mention the words stem cells to people, most people immediately think of embryonic stem cells, which the Catholic Church has come out very strongly against. We've just heard, however, from Professor Fairchild that there are in fact a variety of different ways of obtaining stem cells, and not all of them are considered immoral by the Catholic Church. Uh, Embryonic stem cells, as we've heard, they come from a very early human being. The Church affirms the dignity of human life from conception, and I think there are good philosophical as well as scientific reasons to think that the human embryo, from the moment of conception, is a full human being. It's not just a new cell type in that it's neither the sperm cell nor the ovum that gave rise to it, but it is both a new cell type and indeed a whole new organism with a life of its own. As I said, there were good scientific reasons to think so, and also good philosophical and theological reasons to affirm the dignity of human life from the embryonic stage. So to extract stem cells from the early embryo Quite often, the act of extraction itself results in the destruction, in the death of the embryo. It's sometimes suggested, and perhaps even tried out in labs, that you can biopsy an embryo to obtain the stem cells you want without ending the life of that particular embryo. It's useful to note here that biopsied embryos if then, you know, implanted seem to have a lower rate of implantation. And it's also uh, biopsy of this kind is also associated with other complications, such as in relation to infant mortality rates. So all these are good reasons to suppose that the act of biopsy is, is an act of harm to the embryo. To remind listeners, again, a human being who cannot speak for himself or herself, who cannot give consent, to such um, experimentation, which is not even for its own benefit. And therefore, in 2008, the Catholic Church produced a document called dinitas personae, Latin for the dignity of the person. Uh, This was produced by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is the Holy See's doctrinal office. And in drawing attention to the moral problems associated with extracting stem cells from embryos, the Church wrote, that such research, I quote, advances through the suppression of human lives that are equal in dignity to the lives of other human individuals and to the lives of the researchers themselves. History itself has condemned such a science in the past and will condemn it in the future, not only because it lacks the light of God, but also because it lacks humanity." End of quote. By contrast, methods such as the extraction of adult stem cells, which are, as Professor Fairchild has mentioned, not pluripotent or totipotent, but multipotent. They're slightly limited in efficacy, but uh, they still have immense clinical potential. Methods such as the extraction of adult stem cells, as well as the production of induced pluripotent stem cells from adult cells, uh, from ordinary cells in the body, these are not deemed as morally problematic insofar as they do not Cause any grave harm or end of life of the human from whom such cells are taken. There has been a lot of pioneering work in such stem cells. Indeed, the, the Catholic Church, for example, the Diocese of the Archdiocese of Sydney in Australia, as well as one of the Pontifical Academies in the Vatican, and I'm sure there are other Catholic bodies. These have given um, huge amounts of money to fund research in adult stem cells. For example, most notably in, in Australia, uh, the the adult stem cell scientist, Alan McKay-Sim, was awarded some funding from the Diocese of of Sydney. And he he was later awarded the Australian of the Year Award for his pioneering work in adult stem cells. I think he worked on stem cells obtained from the nose. So these forms of stem cells are ethically preferable to embryonic stem cells. And in fact, clinical data suggests that these may even be more effective than embryonic stem cells. I don't want to paint an absolute black and white picture that one is better than the other from a clinical point of view. But it is well known among scientists that embryonic stem cells can be difficult to control, a high chance of them, if implanted into the body for clinical purposes, might result in a tumour rather than in the regeneration of the particular tissue you're aiming to, to regenerate. You also have typical problems of transplant rejection, given that the embryonic stem cells, in all likelihood, would come from a different embryo, i.e. a different human being, somebody with a different genetic makeup. There were attempts in the past to try and make a clone of the patient in order to extract embryonic stem cells from the patient's clone. But cloning is a very inefficient process. And so to my knowledge, this has not resulted in any huge success of any kind. Whereas adult stem cells, by far, seem to have the most promise in terms of in terms of how close we are to any of these therapies becoming mainstream. As I understand, in fact, perhaps the only stem cell therapy that is as routine as it gets in terms of medical procedures is bone marrow transplants for patients such as um, leukemia patients. And indeed, nowadays you can even just do a transplant of hematopoic stem cells, the blood stem cells. These are adult stem cells. They've been Such transplants have been occurring of the bone marrow since 1950s, even before scientists understood the stem cell science behind it, and the church would fully support and does fully support such ethical science. Professor I would you like to add something to that?
2: Uh, Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a, a lot of information there, so thank you very much for that, Michael. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the only real stem cell therapy that has ever been used routinely in a clinical setting is bone marrow transplantation. Having said that, there are lots of problems with bone marrow transplantation. Things like graft versus host disease, for instance, which is often fatal in something like 50% of recipients. So there are lots of issues associated with it. I think a lot of us would much prefer to be using multipotent stem cells, which are harvested directly from individuals. The problem with multipotent stem cells is that they are unbelievably difficult to access because they are found in those niches that I mentioned earlier and are smuggled away in pretty much all tissues. So trying to actually find those cells and to extract them is actually often a terminal procedure. So it would be very difficult to actually access cell types other than those that are available perhaps from the bone marrow, which would be those hematopoietic stem cells you mentioned, and perhaps mesenchymal stem cells as well. Um, There are a few other cell types that have been accessed. You mentioned, and I forget his name, but somebody in Australia who had accessed stem cells from the nose, from the olfactory bulb, I imagine. And those are actually neural stem cells because the olfactory bulb has what is known as the rostral migration stream of stem cells, which move into the brain and then supply the brain with differentiated cell types. So those could potentially be accessed. But the vast majority of those multipotent stem cells are just inaccessible. And even if we could access them, then they are so rare, there are so few of them, that we wouldn't actually be able to do anything meaningful or clinically relevant with them. And that's really why people have turned to pluripotency instead, because if you have a pluripotent stem cell, that same single cell line could actually generate many different tissues rather than just one particular cell type. And so that's actually the hope that with a single cell line, we could actually treat many different disease states rather than just a single disease. And actually, you know, a lot of the problem with using stem cells is actually the ratio of donors to recipients. Because if you were to use multipotent stem cells, then you would arguably have to have one donor for every recipient. And sometimes you would need more than one donor per recipient. Perhaps three or four people would have to contribute those multipotent stem cells to get enough of those cells to treat the patient. And with pluripotent cells, just a single line could potentially treat 10, a hundred, a 1, thousand. There's actually no theoretical upper limit to the number of people that could be treated from that single donor. So there are lots of practical issues that are worth thinking about when we decide on which cell type that we would want to use in a clinical setting.
1: You mentioned mesenchymal stem cells, yeah. and they can be sourced from a spare embryos after in vitro fertilization. And uh, some companies are looking at developing cell therapies with the use of mesenchymal <coughs> stem cells sourced that way. I wonder, what would you, Michael, say to people who who think that it is okay to use a spare embryo from in vitro fertilization to create a cell therapy because this embryo was on a path of destruction and then it would be killed anyway, so we might as well just make good use of it.
0: What do you mean by a mesenchymal tissue?
2: So mesenchymal stem cells are a second type of stem cell that you can find within the bone marrow. And they can sometimes be accessed relatively easily by mobilizing them into the bloodstream using something called VEGF, which is just a cytokine. And that mobilizes them into the bloodstream where they can be accessed through leukophoresis. And these are stem cells which give rise to many of the different structural tissues of the body. So things like um, chondrocytes, which make cartilage, osteoblasts that give rise to bone, adipocytes that give rise to adipose tissue or fat tissue, fibroblasts, there's a whole range of different cell types that those mesenchymal stem cells can give rise to.
3: So in response to your question, Shimon, I would say that the thinning of these embryos are going to die anyway, is a very dangerous one to take. If we were to consider an adult human being who is dying, perhaps in, in palliative care, perhaps lacking capacity to give consent for donation of tissue or organs. Uh, We would not think that just because they're dying anyway, that we have the right to extract any organs or tissue from them. I think that's a broadly similar line that we have to take with embryos, even though it might be on a path of destruction, as you put it, this path of destruction is indeed the construction of the scientists and the whole system of IVF and of embryonic experimentation. And indeed, the act of extraction of stem cells from these embryos quite often kills or, if not, seriously harms them. So one would be adding further harm on top of the very unjust system that is perpetuating the deaths of these embryos. If you take a look at data from the UK's Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, you'll find, as Professor Fairchild, I think, already suggested, there are very few embryos, comparatively few embryos, that are experimented on, which had been conceived in vitro purely for the purposes of experimental use. The vast majority of embryos experimented on and destroyed. And there's numbers in the thousands each year. These are so-called spare or discarded embryos. And a slightly smaller number are frozen embryos. So the rest are so-called fresh embryos discarded from IVF. So we have to look at the broader picture and look at the whole system of IVF together with embryonic experimentation. And we have to think about whether there are any perverse incentives for parents, for commissioning mothers or parents to discard their spare embryos, thinking that they would be doing science a service. And this, I think, in the long term, would lead to a certain more casual attitude towards early human life.
0: I want to get back to what you said, Michael, about whether the church, you know, supports certain types of cell research and, and doesn't others. And one of the first Google results that I got when I was researching stem cells and the Catholic Church, the first thing that came up was an article in the Guardian in 2010. It was basically a transcript from Richard Dawkins, and he claimed that Pope Benedict XVI was, and I quote, an enemy of science, obstructing vital stem cell research. On grounds of not morality but of pre-scientific superstition i find it hard because he mentioned all of these things if you're having a bad day don't read the article <laughs> it's a bit of a negative article but it was that year 2010 and i think it was a bit dishonest because he was really good at, i say criticizing and picking things apart and then he didn't mention that in that same year in 2010 during Benedict XVI's pontificate the vatican donated three million dollars to adult stem cell research for a collaboration that they did with the university of maryland and they also did in that same year another partnership with something called caladres biosciences called it was former neo stem and they had another partnership to raise awareness and advance scientific research on adult stem cells and you can also add on top of that 2011 and 2013 to conferences hosted by the vatican So I think that it is, I guess, slightly easier to have sensationalist articles and and things about the church and stem cell. But I think that what you said about the Diocese of Sydney just reminded me that sometimes we can be slightly unilateral and not realise what other things, even if the Vatican doesn't agree with embryonic stem cell research, but it does support other types of stem cell research. So I thought that was very important. And thank you for pointing that out.
3: Yes, I think it's useful to point out several things here. First of all, the document I mentioned earlier, Dinitas Personae, was published in 2008 during the pontificate of Pope Benedict. And although the common image of Vatican documents, and this one is no exception, it includes a lot of condemnations, or at least um, the drawing of attention to practices and procedures which are morally problematic, it does also encourage things like the use of adult stem cells. I think when science is ethical, when it doesn't pose any serious moral problems, the church is not going to comment on every single one of them, you know, the thousands of medical procedures, which are not not only good science, but also ethically sound. And the church is obviously going to spend much more time pointing out those which are problematic, but also those deeply embedded in, in the scientific culture, or perhaps the culture at large. The last point I want to make here is also that we have to be very careful about what the proper relationship between science and ethics is. Now, it is true that for medical ethics, for bioethics to evolve, it needs to be informed by the latest science. Otherwise, we wouldn't be good ethicists if we were only talking about, you know, the science of 50 years ago, or even 20 years ago, because science moves very quickly. However, we can't read ethics off the scientific page. Science itself doesn't show us what the normative principles are. Science can show us what is clinically effective and what is not, for example, but it can't show us what is morally right and what is morally wrong. And so there has to be an ongoing dialogue. It's not about pre-scientific superstition, but about being, among other things, consistent with the rest of our moral principles in society, including our understanding of human rights and seeking to apply the same insights to adults human beings to human embryos and fetuses as well who are also deserving of our respect.
1: Thank you for joining us on Radio Maria England for our science and faith program. In today's episode on embryonic cells in research and medicine, is the church against progress? We have two guests, Michael Wee, a bioethicist and professor Paul Fairchild, stem cell biologist and professor of immunology from Oxford. So far, we discussed the use of stem cells in research and medicine and for what purpose we use them, how we can source them, and what are the moral concerns of uh, using these cells. But this is not the only way that embryonic cells are used in research. Another area where these cells, fetal cells or embryonic cells, are used to create cell lines to produce vaccines, drugs. So Professor Fairchild, could you tell us a bit more about what is a cell line and why do Mm. some of them come from aborted foetuses and what role do these cell lines play in the vaccine and drug development?
2: Yes, thank you. Well, cell lines are quite distinct from naturally occurring cell types, but they are derived directly from them. So if you were to access most cell types from an individual and to maintain them in a laboratory setting, they would probably survive for only a few days. And they almost certainly wouldn't go through cell division. So you wouldn't be able to propagate those cells long term. A cell line is a a cell type which is derived from those naturally occurring cells, but which is effectively immortalized. And that can be through various different ways. For instance, some of these cell lines are actually cancer cell lines derived from somebody who perhaps died of a cancer. Perhaps the most well-known of those is something known as the HeLa cell, which came from somebody called Henrietta Lacks back in the early 1950s, I believe it was. She actually sadly died of cervical cancer, and this cell line is actually derived from that cancer. And of course, a cancer cell has that property of continual multiplication. That is why it is so tragic that it kills people. And so those cells can be propagated in vitro long term. And there are various other cell lines, as well, which are derived from cancers. Jercat is a human T-cell leukemia cell line, for instance, which is also used in research. But there are other cell types that you may wish to access and then to induce them to multiply you know, indefinitely in vitro. And you can do that by infecting them with some what are known as oncoviruses, which would in themselves actually cause a cancer. And a typical one is something called adenovirus 5 which when it's integrated into a cell makes it transformed. So in other words, it begins to proliferate out of control. And so you then capture some of the properties of the cell type that you've just reprogrammed or you've just infected with that virus. And in fact, that cell can now proliferate indefinitely in vitro, and you have a, you know, a source of those cells in perpetuity.
1: So these are examples <clears throat> of oncogenic cell lines, right? So those are derived from cancer cells. And as you mentioned, we can induce almost any cell to create a cell line. What is an advantage of using fetal cells to make them into cell lines as a source?
2: I suppose when tissues are taken from early foetuses that they already have the opportunity to go through multiple cell divisions. Though, so because that is such an early stage of human development, they have not reached what is known as the Hayflick limit, the total number of times that cells can go through cell division before they become senescent. So there is an advantage to accessing cells from a foetus, for instance, and then transforming those cells into a cell line. Uh, to my knowledge, that's not actually done very often. There is one particular cell line which has been used on a number of occasions and it's known as HEC 293 cells and that stands for human embryonic kidney cells. So these were cells derived from the the kidney of an aborted fetus. It is thought that they are actually neuronal cells in fact and these are now propagated indefinitely in vitro and have been used throughout the world particularly for vaccine development. And they were transformed, in fact, using that adenovirus 5 virus, which induces mutations within the cell, which then causes them to proliferate indefinitely.
0: One of my concerns, and perhaps of many Catholics and more broadly Christians, might be the remote cooperation with evil. So, do you think considerations like this, are they justified when it comes to the use of fetal cell lines in drugs and vaccines?
3: Well, I think as, as most listeners are aware, this has become particularly well-known with the case of certain COVID-19 vaccines. But indeed, fetal cell lines, and most notably the HEK or HEC 293 cell line, uh, have been used in scientific research, uh, including for vaccine production for, for many years, way before COVID-19 vaccines were first developed. I think that we have to be quite precise about where the moral problems lie in this regard. We are here dealing with quite a different sort of moral question from the extraction of stem cells from embryos, for example. Here we have, in the case of fetal cell lines, we have have tissue which is extracted from an aborted fetus, and this extraction, although it is not that which which kills the fetus The preparations for such extraction have had to be made in close connection with the abortion. So it's a kind of complicity which is which is so close that the Church would, in its um, in her traditional distinction, would call formal cooperation. You're sharing very much in the bad action of abortion, in being so close to the act, relying pretty much on the success of the act of abortion in order to extract that tissue for use in scientific development of an immortalized cell line. That being said, many of the fetal cell lines in use today, including the HEC 293 cell line, have been around for years, even decades. If I'm not wrong, the HEC 293 cell line was developed in the 1970s. So these cell lines have become, you might say, a thing in the world. It is not so common that scientists are continually procuring new fetal tissue to develop new cell lines. And that makes it very different from the extraction of stem cells from embryos, which is ongoing and where huge numbers of embryos are destroyed through such experimentation. Because the fetal cell lines in this case, many of the common ones, pretty much serve a lot of the purposes that scientists need them for. There's very little need new cell lines to be developed from new or future abortions. Therefore, the connection of present day scientists using these old cell lines is at a certain moral distance, not just distance in time, but a certain moral distance from the original evil of abortion. That is not to say that we should turn a blind eye to this connection. And the Catholic Church has encouraged scientists to bear witness to life. And therefore teaches that there is a duty to refuse the use of such material in their scientific work. So even if there is a certain independence which cannot be denied from the original act of extraction, which is highly immoral, the church still asks scientists, still calls on scientists to not compromise their witness to life. And I think this is because the work of scientists, though at a certain moral distance, I emphasize, is still very much directly appropriating the results of that original extraction from the original abortion. The church, on the other hand, evaluates the situation of end users of vaccines rather differently. People like ordinary people like you and me, who don't have a say in how many of these drugs and therapies are developed. We don't have the same degree of responsibility as the scientists. We quite often just look for the best or in many cases the only therapy available. And so the church says that well, when there is a serious reason to use a vaccine, which may have been developed using a fetal cell line, and there are no morally preferable alternatives, it is possible, it is moral to use such vaccines. And that is because our connection, the connection of end users of vaccines is so remote, so far removed, even more remote and even more distant than those scientists, that this should not pose a moral problem. It should not pose a a false witness to the value and the defence of human life in the womb.
0: Professor Fairchild, as a non-Catholic, you may have a, a different perspective on what we've just asked about.
2: Yes, well, I would agree with much of what Michael has already said. You know, I believe absolutely in the sanctity of human life. And I would take a very pro-life stance personally. But I suppose I come at these questions from a slightly more pragmatic position as a scientist. You know, for instance, with the use of HEC 293 cells, these cells are already in existence, and as Michael pointed out, they've actually been around now since the early 1970s and have been used by many people around the world for for very useful research. And whether or not I agree with abortion makes absolutely no difference to the fact that those cells were derived from an aborted fetus. Now I can just decide to distance myself from that and to say that I I want nothing to do with it because I would be complicit in that original evil or I could actually make use of those cells to do something which I would consider to be very positive, which could actually lead to life-saving research and the production of a vaccine like the COVID-19 vaccine, which is already saving millions of lives. So the actual initial event doesn't change, of course, but what we do about it actually is up to us. We can either just accept that there was an evil that was perpetrated many years ago and do nothing about it, or we can actually try to bring something positive from it, and that would really be my stunts. I think.
0: Could I just play a bit of you know devil's advocate here? I think what you both said made a lot of sense, and I'm thinking Michael was saying about you know being a really distant evil, and you know we don't really have a direct connection with it. And then where we just said, Professor Fairchild, that you know let's make the most of it, let's make the best of it. It is an evil, but let's kind of try and use it for good. But, I mean, me without having done research myself and knowing all the intricacies, I just think that are we perhaps not doing our best in that regard? Can we induce anything to ensure that we use other cell lines that are not linked to, even if distant, more abortions or something? Can we not do better? I don't mm. know if that question makes sense.
2: Yes no I think it does make sense absolutely and and I would agree that I think we should pursue the most ethically uncontentious way of achieving a particular outcome and personally we my laboratory has moved completely away from the use of embryonic stem cells to the use of induced pluripotent stem cells for that precise reason with HEC 293 cells it's a little bit different of course these are very specialized cells and they are created in such a way which makes them perfect for the use in vaccine development. So there aren't really many alternatives that you could actually use for the development of that particular vaccine. And I think ultimately to have the opportunity and the know-how to create life-saving treatments and improve quality of life and yet choose not to do so is not actually a morally neutral decision to take in its own right. You know, there are ethical issues in deciding not to develop a vaccine for COVID-19 because it would use HEC 293 T cells. So, you know, I think it's easy to think that it's very black and white, but actually I don't think it really
3: is. Uh, Well, thanks very much, uh, Professor Fairchild, for your thoughts, and it's particularly illuminating to hear that uh, from a scientist's perspective. I would say in response to, and, and also building on some of your thoughts, that now it's true that we should try to use what is ethically less problematic or non-problematic indeed. And it's true that indeed there are many other ways of developing vaccines and other therapies that don't involve the use of HEC-293 cells or other such fetal cell lines. I just wanted to say something about why it seems there is a particular apparent inconsistency between the Catholic Church's view on scientists, for whom the Catholic Church says that to use such material, and end users of vaccines uh, why the church says that, they're, that in grave situations, they're allowed to do so. I think it's easy to think that, you know, well, since the material is already there, there's a kind of moral imperative to bring as much good as you can out of it. I can certainly understand why people would think so. Of course, the reality is that a lot of scientific work that is done on such fetal cell lines, indeed, all kinds of scientific work in the clinical sciences, a lot of it maybe even the majority of it doesn't produce an efficacious therapy. So we're talking about lots of trial and error. And of course, science has to proceed through trial and error. But there is no guarantee that in using such cell lines or other morally compromised material, we are definitely going to find a cure to to whichever disease or a vaccine to whichever virus. And that's where I think the role of scientists and the role of end is differ greatly and users only use whatever has been tested and approved. Whereas scientists are the ones at the cutting edge of deciding what to look at, what to do research and obviously they're also constrained or aided by those who fund the research. So it's really scientists and their funders who decide what should be used even without a guarantee of benefit. And so therefore I think it's really scientists and their funders who are perpetuating the use of such material thereby getting the scientific community and the culture at large used to the use of such illicit material in a time where abortions are still going on uh, and very high numbers at that and where any little bit of compromise among those who benefit so directly from the use of such cell lines really can any bit of compromise or any bit of positive witness on the other hand can both make a huge difference negative or positive to building up a culture of life. So, I would respectfully disagree with Professor Fairchild, but I would also, I can certainly understand his point of view.
2: And you're absolutely right, of course. There are no guarantees whatsoever that research will actually generate something which is life saving and a new treatment. But I think the only certainty is that if we don't do that research, we definitely won't produce any useful life saving treatments. So, that's really the, the only certainty that there is. So, you know, I would say that it is still worth trying to pursue this kind of research if the endpoint is something which would bring something very positive out of what was a distant negative or a distant evil, as you would call it.
0: I think it's great to hear a healthy disagreement. We don't get, you know, many of those uh, lately. So that's uh, it's great because the COVID-19 uh, vaccine, Michael, you don't have many choices, right? And it is also for the good of others. And I would like to mention rubella. We thought it was really interesting. Uh, so just for a bit of background, rubella is a communicable disease caused by a virus. The rubella vaccine is made from a fetal cell line. And by getting the rubella vaccine, miscarriages and stir could be prevented. So I think, Michael, you mentioned earlier that it was part of the MMR vaccine. In such a case, do the benefits of the vaccination outweigh the moral concerns in your view?
3: So I think it's useful to get a few things cleared up. You mentioned in passing, that the MMR vaccine uses a fetal cell line, and that's not technically correct. In that, whenever vaccines make use of, in inverted commas, fetal cell lines, and this is, you know, this is often reported in the media, what we really mean is that these cell lines have been used in the design, the development, and sometimes in the testing of these vaccines. But I don't know of a single case where the fetal cell lines in question are actually used as an active ingredient in these vaccines. So that's first of all I think a very important clarification. So if thank you, you for see that any... sometimes
0: we sometimes we do get it wrong so thank you for the clarification.
3: Um but it's it's not just for you I think it's um we are bombarded with a lot of headlines and sometimes irresponsibly sensationalist headlines so I think if for all listeners if you see a headline that says something like fetal body parts in a vaccine that is quite simply Scientifically untrue. Now, as to now, as I mentioned, there are broadly you might think of three stages in vaccine development. There's the design, the, the development itself, and then the production, and then the testing. And some vaccines are, you might say, worse offenders than others. So the Pfizer vaccine is a cell-free vaccine. It's a it's an mRNA vaccine. It's a very new technology. So it doesn't use any cells at all in its design or its production. It has, however, been at least on one occasion that we know of tested using a fetal cell line. But I would assume that all the other tests or most of the other tests didn't. So with the Pfizer vaccine, we're talking about, you know, as far as COVID-19 vaccines go, one of the most, one of the remotest connections you could possibly have with a fetal cell line. The Oxford vaccine, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, by contrast, makes use of fetal cell lines in all three stages, design, production, and testing. Now, it is true that in many countries, and certainly in the UK, you won't exactly be given a choice as to which vaccine you're going to be offered. And so, as I mentioned, the Catholic Church does say that When there are serious reasons, it is morally permissible to take a vaccine that was produced using illicit biological material. So, really, it comes down to a question of is COVID 19 a serious reason? Is the pandemic and our efforts to stop the pandemic a serious reason to take such a vaccine when offered and when there's no uh, ethical alternative? I would say that COVID 19 and, and the whole pandemic eminently is. Serious reason. I don't want to get into all the details because I know all of us have been (laughs) subjected to so much COVID news over the past one year. But I would just put it in this way: if you look at the excess deaths from the UK from last year, from 2020, we haven't seen that level of excess deaths since the last world war. And many people are sometimes misled by what seems to be a very small kill rate of the virus. Some people estimate it's below one percent. It may be a small death rate in relation to the total number of people infected, but one percent or 0.5 percent of a very large number of infected people amounts to a very large number of people who are going to die or who indeed who have died from the virus. And prior to the vaccine program, since there was not a huge amount of natural immunity to the virus, it meant that COVID-19 had a far higher infection rate than normal seasonal flu. And that explains the high numbers of deaths. So I don't want to go into more detail than that, other than to say, of course, you can talk about long COVID, for example, and many other things to talk about, but this is a serious pandemic. It has killed many, many people in the UK, in America, and in many other countries. And I think, furthermore, so people who are at most risk of contracting the virus, people who are at most risk of of dying from the virus because of pre-existing health conditions or other risk factors, for example, there is quite a huge onus on them to take the vaccine out of respect for their own life, their life given to them by God. But also we we are hearing some encouraging preliminary data that at least some of the vaccines do seem to play a role in cutting down transmission rates. So obviously, vaccines first and foremost, are for the individual person's protection from serious illness. It doesn't mean that they would cease to be carriers of the virus, the coronavirus, if they're vaccinated. Nonetheless, it may well be that because they're vaccinated, their viral load is far lower than without a vaccine. And it seems, as I mentioned, there is some preliminary data, very encouraging data that suggests vaccination does not only slash hospitalization rates, but also slashes transmission rates. And so that means that this is a form of charity to our fellow neighbor. This is a contribution to herd immunity in the population. And I would say that there is all of these things together would add up to a very serious reason or a serious set of reasons for taking COVID-19 vaccines. Indeed, I would encourage all listeners to take a vaccine and also as the church encourages us to do so to then to our healthcare provider, to, to make known our disagreement with the use of such fetal cell lines and encourage our healthcare systems to promote the use of more ethical alternatives.
1: That shows the whole complexity of the situation. I think one thing that we need to realize is that often we think about the church as saying yes or no, and more often no than yes. <laughs> but there's this grey area as well where we are the moral agents to make the final moral decision. And I it think it's one of these examples okay so today we talked about the use of stem cells in medicine regenerative medicine and the use of fetal cell lanes in drug and vaccine development there's been quite a lot of different topics that we touched on i wanted to ask you now to maybe give us a short take home message for our listeners if you could think about would you like our listeners to take away from this conversation
2: Well, I suppose from my perspective, I'd like to encourage people to think of things in a more pragmatic way, that an awful lot of good can come out of the kind of research that we've been discussing, either using stem cells or potentially fetal cell lines. And, you know, that is, I think, what I would, or the stunts that I would certainly take as a scientist. But there are complex ethical issues, and I wouldn't want to dismiss those in any way whatsoever. And much of what Michael and others have said, I would agree with wholeheartedly. But as a scientist, my my emphasis is trying to produce something which would be life-saving and life-changing. And sometimes that means doing things which can feel ethically uncomfortable, but which I personally think are justified under the circumstances.
3: I would say that, The two topics we've just discussed are brilliant examples of the complex world we live in, ethically speaking. And it's useful to think about when we come across issues such as fetal cell lines derived from abortion, and that rightly sends alarm bells ringing in our minds. And sometimes that can lead us to, to disregarding the good that can still come out of that. And I think that's not always fair it's useful to think in terms of the wider picture that we all live in a world where good and evil interconnect and intersect. There is not a single one of us that does not benefit from somebody else's evil actions. It could be that we live in a house that was built by exploitation of laborers. It could be that we work for a company that built up much of its initial wealth through very underhand and immoral practices. We all live in a web Of good and bad. We we shouldn't shy away from things that might make us feel uncomfortable, as Professor Fairchild says, that might still be justified. However, I think, as you've already heard, some of different people might draw the line differently. We have to be very clear that the defence of human life is a serious matter, and indeed, there are many serious threats and ongoing assaults on the dignity of human life, especially the most vulnerable, such as unborn children and indeed embryos in the lab, who have no uh, gestational parents, Uh, they don't even have the bodily protection of a mother. We should be alive to the severity of these assaults and threats. And we cannot simply adopt a mentality of ends or potential ends justifying the means. Yes, sometimes we, we have to do things which are uncomfortable because of the associations with evil, but sometimes that discomfort, that repugnance, may also be a sign that this, we are coming too close, or we are already too close to the original evil. And this is a sign that we should stop, that we should bear witness, even if it may mean some material loss to ourselves.
0: It is thinking time for our listeners, so we will leave them to do just that. Once again, only gratitude in our hearts to our guests. Professor Fairchild and Michael Wee, thank you so much for making this conversation possible and for showing the world that we can have healthy disagreements. To our listeners, thank you for listening, tuning in and being a part of Radio Maria England Science and Faith. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is Marta speaking.
1: And this is Sean speaking. See you next time. Thank you so much for joining us. God bless.